Hello, and welcome to Mind Matters, presented by A Light for Change, where we talk about the who, what, where, why, and how we as a community can make positive changes. The win is up to all of us, and it starts with you. Before I start, let's get into a positive zone, and I'll share my thoughts on a question from Graduate Thrivers Paths Cards. The card drawn is purple for relationships, and the question is, what do you like to do with your family? Or sorry, what would you like to do more with your family? I would like to be able to be more in the moment with my children. Being an adult is incredibly stressful and their minds so freely see the small joys of life. I would also like to rekindle the passion my husband and I normalized not being ever present as we let life get in the way and forgot how, really. I guess you could say I just want to be with my family more. This is Season 1, Mental Health, Episode 2, Thinking About Your Mind. We have all heard the saying and seen plenty of examples of how one good deed begets another, or smiles are contagious. But what does that mean for a community member trying to make a difference? It means that by being a present open-minded, understanding person yourself, others will follow your example. It means thinking to yourself, how would you want to be treated if you were in their shoes and how you would want to be forgiven if you had done the same thing? Or would you want someone to give you a chance to show your worth as well as any of the other similar phrases? Whether or not you identify as suffering with mental health afflictions, we can all benefit from knowing ways to improve how to handle mental distress or any distress. The problem I find is that we wait till our mind has broken down from afflictions and poor distress management before we admit any issue, hoping there will be someone available to help. Seeking a health practitioner of any sort can be very expensive more so for those specialized in mental health care. I think we all need to have at least the basic information available to understand without fees, and we should all try to apply these techniques to our daily life practices. Even if you feel you are at the top of your game, there are still going to be days with losses, days where other people's shit gets in your way, delays, and mix-ups. There will be times you get hurt, times money doesn't flow like it should, and time someone you love will cause you pain. A healthy mind still must deal with problems, and it is unfortunate that our, for decades society has taught to repress and move on. What harm can adding an extra layer of protective coding to the computer system that is our mind do? It will only make you faster and stronger at processing impacts from both poles, negative and positive, finding the lesson and growing from it. Even just discussing distress tolerance and improvement activities can remind someone of the ability to get through hard times. But processing and working through these methods can help soothe a mind that is negatively afflicted once it is triggered and aid in the healing the infective depression caused down to the moment the mind was afflicted. You can find all the information we will discuss today at the Center for Clinical Interventions website in more detail at www.cci.ca.
H-E-A-L-T-H dot W-A dot dot A-U slash capital R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-S slash capital F-O-R dash capital C-L-I-N-I-C-I-A-N-S dash capital D-I-S-T-R-E-S-S dash tolerance capital T-O-L-E-R-A-N-C-E. Sorry about that. The first thing we are going to learn is facing your feelings and emotions, which is the site already has a perfectly worded introduction, which goes like this. We all experience emotions. Emotions are an important part of being human and are essential to our survival. As humans, we are designed to feel a whole range of emotions, some of which may be comfortable to us and others may be uncomfortable. We all have things and moments that bring us stress. Most of the time you can rely on your common sense, compassionate localized community, and a little self-care. However, it is those moments where your mind makes a mountain out of a molehill, or as the site more aptly puts it, making a lake out of a puddle, that things get a bit more complicated. If your mind screams at you to stop and walk or even run away, if you have the overwhelming need to avoid something at all costs, or even if you feel you need to run through a puddle at full speed with no forethought, that's when we really get to know what we're made of. This is when it's best to take a step back and analyze. You may need help, perhaps even professional assistance, because the answers you get to the who, what, when, where, and why, as well as the hows of the matter, may just be a good warning, one to follow, as it will lead you down the right path, where others will make little sense at first and will need a bit of deeper thought. No matter what the results or the circumstances were, you cannot grow through these moments if you first don't step into experiencing them. Accept how it's played out and face those moments that feel negative in some way. I don't suggest jumping up the deep end head first and trying something bold until you've developed a form of processing life that works for you. Your life, life in general, is the most thrilling, edge-of-your-seat, action-packed, emotion-filled, sensational story ever to be, and it's experienced in real time. Read it back, starting with the small moments. Ask yourself the five W's of the outline. First, what happened or is happening in the environment at the moment? Add more detail to the situation by asking yourself why that moment was happening. What was the purpose behind it? Follow this by asking yourself how was I or am I feeling physically in the moment and how did I or do I feel I behaved? Next, the layer to build into the storyline is who contributed which emotions to the situation. After that, you must consider when the changes happened in your emotional or physical state at various stages of the moment. Before we get into the last W, you need to get a bit deeper with the first four. What was I thinking at various stages of the moment? And why was I thinking that way? Should you consider how life instilled rules of thumb played a factor and who else contributed information in the moment. At this point, 
you can look deeper into the last W, being where the information comes from, under which perspective lens. Here's a small personal example of a moment that used to happen fairly often until I learned to understand it. I used to argue with my mom, who we decided would live with us instead of going into a home, about how she folded laundry every time she did it, until she just quit doing it altogether, which made me even more upset because it was her only responsibility. What was the environment like in that situation? Was the first thing I had to ask myself. It was usually calm, just doing regular housework and the kids were usually in school. Okay, so it wasn't the environment. So what was I thinking each time? I was probably thinking that clothes last longer if they're washed, dried, and folded properly, and that they cost me a lot of money so she could put a little care and effort into what she was doing so the money wasn't wasted. I probably thought about how much having a twisted seam irritated me and how I was teased as a child by my peers if my attire wasn't just right. Either way, my express thought was to tell her she wasn't doing good enough, which made her feel defeated and go through her own mentally afflicted processing. Why did these fights happen is completely on me. Despite her lack of effort in my perspective, because I had different higher expectations, I have a hard time developing, delegating, sorry, because I think my way is best. And I catastrophize the effects of possible teasing would have on my children. I am the one who made choices that lend to a lower household income than the one I grew up in. And I am the one who is uncomfortable with twisted scenes. How I felt in those moments was almost always frustration because I knew she was doing what she could and what she considered was right and her best. But to me, it seemed like her way was purposely neglecting because I can't provide her with as lush a life as my dad did. I behave selfishly because the previous statement is that of personal shame for not being enough to provide. It was wrong of me to not see how my words hurt her and impacted how she chose moving forward. It was my own internal dialogue that said she was folding haphazardly intentionally to make me angry when in reality, she had done what was asked, being fold the laundry. Who contributed to the emotions in that moment would again be me, because after, for the most part at least, because after a few times I started going into the moment with the mindset she had already failed me, where my mom's reactionary emotions only intensified my emotion. My father also contributed to each moment because of for years, I would listen to him complain about how my mom lacked mothering and wifely skills, and she was lucky he loved her so deeply. Society also had its hand in forming my internal dialogue, because it is an unspoken rule that women have the care-giving role, the home maintenance role, and that the younger generations should seek guidance from their elders. Understanding where the, the information came from that fueled my entire internal dialogue so I would see things from a different perspective than I did took me some time but eventually I realized it was coming from a place of fear. I fear not being able to provide. I am scared to be perceived as incapable of achieving standards. 
I am scared my children will be teased what, like I was. And the toughest reality to accept is that I fear losing control of my home and sanctuary. Let me take you a bit deeper to the what analysis of that moment and think about how our environment affects us. Think about how you take in the environment with your senses. In reflection, it can be like playing a role play game where you need to scan the room for details and think about how each piece relates and how relevant it is. You may not have control of noise, visual stimulus, temperature, smells, interaction speed, or what you're hand handling, but you do have the ability to work with it when considering how it affects you. When you reflect on the role the environment plays, it can take time to pinpoint a particular trigger where the whole of the environment is generalized to an associated feeling, and other times the trigger seems to have a flashing beacon and a blaring siren on it saying, I make you feel like this. Whatever the emotion of the moment is, be it good or bad. Now, I want you to zoom in and let the environment blur so you can sit with yourself and reflect on what your thoughts were in the moment. Were you focused on something your senses were taking in from the environment? Were you thinking about something your body was telling you? Were you thinking about what someone was saying in the moment? Were you thinking about a different moment altogether? Were you thinking about what something in the moment reminded you of? Were you thinking about what you had to get done? Or were you just taking it all with no considerable thoughts, taking it all in with no considerable thoughts at all? You don't need to psychoanalyze all this information. Just be aware of it and consider the role it plays on how that moment affects you. Later, you will teach yourself methods that work for you to manage this information input, to li limit negative situation response and emotional processing. In time, all this work you put into yourself will give you the ability to find jo a joyful life out of every moment. It is important to understand your behavioral traits so you don't allow thinking about your thoughts to become a problem in and of itself. I am a compulsive thinker. There are moments when I have three or four thoughts on repeat so I won't forget to jot them down when I can, while at the same time thinking of the moment, the future, the past, and often one or two other topics. I don't know why I'm like that yet. It's definitely not intentionally. And I'm not sure how I keep it all straight. But it is what it is, and it makes it very difficult to be fully in the moment. Knowing this about myself, I learned not to reflect on the moment in the moment because it was just adding another thought, but sought out other techniques until stealing one from my peers in a therapy group. I started training myself to think I was holding a video camera, filming everything so I can edit it later. This may not work for you, but it allowed me to still take in the information through my eyes while my mind raced. I'm a few months into using this technique, and though I haven't slowed my thoughts, I have learned to recognize when I'm doing it. Perhaps, in time, I will meet someone else who shares their techniques, and I will find another layer to add on that will guide me towards focused thought. But I know the more I practice, one day my mind will stay in the moment I am living in. Why is a big part of the storyline when it, as it ties all the information together? So let's talk about the why of facing your feelings a little bit more. 
Why comes after what because it answers the question your brain is trying to process. We don't tend to do things without a reason. Most often the reason is because we must, being a responsibility. But outside of that, it can often be an obscure concept to consider. I will say it often, but always focus on the small moments first so you do not become overwhelmed with the complexities of the larger issues. The purpose of a moment is usually simpler when we make it out to be, on the small scale at least. To use a personal example, one day my family was rearranging furniture and one of the couches wouldn't fit right. No matter what we tried, and eventually tempers flared and we ended up donating the couch away. In the heat of the moment, emotions played their part, and my husband and I argued about who cared about furniture, money, and design more than the other. But the reality was that the purpose in the moment was to change the room to be more conducive to family interaction. None of what we argued about actually applied to the situation, as the couch didn't work in achieving the purpose. It is important to keep in mind that purpose is objective without emotional bias so it can have values lending to growth through negative scenarios and growth through positive scenarios. The second part of why in facing your feelings is to think about what you were thinking. If your thoughts were relevant to the purpose, then that's perfect. Why did they guide you? What did they guide you to do? And how were they helpful? Keeping track of these moments where your brain is working with the moment in your favor towards balance is like taking notes for your own personalized how-to survival life manual. If your thoughts are not in line with the moment's purpose, then you need to think about why that was the case. In the example I gave about arguing on the couch, we argued, but it wasn't in relevance because we were both frustrated with the fact that no matter what we do, things were not working out. Whether there wasn't enough money, the cost of living was getting too high to repla replace big ticket items. And the more we lost connection, being so busy surviving and trying to stay afloat, as well as the need of us agreed with the way things were at the time, so it turned out into a blame game. The reality is neither both of us, sorry, neither of us and both of us were at fault at the same time. Both of us were frustrated with the poor quality of family time that seemed to be caused by the non-conducive flow of our house but we both had different ideas of what that should look like and had not negotiated a common middle ground idea. We were both at fault because a place doesn't change time, but we could have taken the time to be more family focused. Neither of us were at fault as it is okay to be frustrated and want change for the better, but the structure of the house is set and was the most we could get for our budget meaning the flow issue was beyond our control for the most part. Most importantly, every family member was part of the cause because we had allowed ourselves to go blind with survival glasses, forgetting how to really see and hear each other. Like the example, the answer will be yours alone, 
and it may change as you grow to understand a moment more. But just going through the process of considering why will help you like practicing for a big game to keep a balance between what you're thinking and what the purpose of the moment is in the future. The plot thickens as we explore how a moment plays out in the story, and it's no different when you're facing your feelings. The first how we consider is how we felt physically in a moment. Were you hangry? Were you hungry or tired? Maybe you felt sick or you had a headache. All of these things cause your body to send signals to the brain to react, which sends your thoughts into emergency procedure mode. Unfortunately, non-vital information and response signals to it can get a little blurred. Hence the funny little sayings like hangry, crankopated, and sleep-deprived delirium. Turning off the alarms and saying to your brain, I hear you and I'm addressing these issues, will allow the brain to go back into standard operating mode and return your thoughts to be more in line with the purpose of the moment. The body also sends us signals that relate to how we are tolerating a situation that we interpret and react to. It may be butterflies when, it, when you're nervous, getting a temperature when you're feeling angry, tingling and numb sensations of the limbs when you're uncertain, dizziness when you're anxious, tightness of the chest when you're scared, or all of them all at once when you're panicked. When we get these signals, we often act subconsciously in haste to change it using learned behaviors that may not be meant for that particular life survival moment. When we are reflecting on the moment and learn to see that we reacted in fight or flight to a signal that altered how the scenario played out, then you are aware of it. And as you feel comfortable, you can begin to train yourself on how to negotiate these feelings in these moments. How we feel can be categorized into six categories. The sad group includes emotions that reflect sadness at varying degrees of intensity. This would include disappointment, hurt, despair, guilt, shame, sadness, depression, grief, and misery. These emotions can be accompanied by either low physiological arousal, like low energy, fatigue, and heaviness, or heightened physiological arousal, such as intense crying and restlessness, thoughts of hopelessness, loss, regret, and inadequacy, and the urge to hide away from life. The mad group includes emotions that reflect anger at varying degrees of intensity. This would include irritation, agitation, frustration, disgust, jealousy, anger, rage, and hatred. These emotions are usually accompanied by high physiological arousal, such as tension, increased heart rate, feeling sweaty or hot, etc., thoughts of unfairness, injustice, and wrongdoing, and the urge to lash out in some way. The scared group includes emotions that reflect fear at varying degrees of intensity, and this would include nervousness, anxiety, dread, fear, panic, terror, and so forth. These emotions are usually accompanied by high physiological arousal, such as increased heart rate, increased breathing, tension, sweating, shaking, butterflies in the stomach, and etc. Thoughts of threat, vulnerability, and helplessness, and the urge to avoid. The love grouping, which includes emotions that reflect gratitude, intimacy, trust, hope, and optimism, as well as the joy grouping, which includes emotions that reflect surprise, playfulness, freedom, and curiosity, 
often to help guide us in our relationship choices and how to see life in a more positive mindset. The satisfaction grouping includes emotions that reflect to pride, confidence, courage, and creativity. These subconscious reactions and emotions occur after any automated response to a signal is activated. Automated responses are the conditioned behaviors learned from repeated outcomes of safety or lack thereof in the past. The fitting in with the pack mentality comes from this learned response to safety, as well as the lone wealth mentality. Which brings me to the who of the moment. What are the other players in the story, direct or indirect? There is the first layer of players feeding information to you as a character. These characters are directly involved in the moment and are feeding information with their words, body, expressions, and energy. Your brain takes it all in and says, okay, this is what I make of it. This is how relevant I think the information is to the moment and how I think you should respond to it. However, just like an office can have employees who occasionally make mistakes that set off a ripple effect of miscommunicated information, so can the brain. It is important to understand that the brain is basing its reaction on a past set of stored downloads and what you have told it to plan to do in the future. But that doesn't mean what was processed as a resulting command is the best for the moment. Think about when you were a teenager, challenging what your parents commanded. The parent is only giving guidance towards what they think is best based on what they know from their experiences of life, where the teen is living from a slightly different perspective that is more suited to the standards of their time. When thinking about your thoughts, you are the teenager who is challenging what your parents' brain is telling you. Sometimes you'll end up agreeing with your brain, and other times you'll need to say, that way is no longer applicable, please update. Then there are the indirect players, the ones you encountered while learning your safety automatic responses in the past, and the ones having a recurring role in the ongoing story at the present chapter of life. These characters provide information that impact why a decision was or is being made. Parents, children, siblings, neighbors, community members, teachers, and everyone who comes into your life at some point leaves a fingerprint in your memory. That fingerprint says things like, in that moment, this is what we did, and this is what happened, which was either good or bad. Some people or places, maybe things, have many fingerprints in your memory, giving them importance, becoming a factor that is a sub-part of you, like your family. The factor they play in the outcome can be pro or con, uplifting or limiting, but often not something you could rid yourself of. All of these factors and prints of information layer into a personal rule that can sometimes be distorted. Here are some common assumptions and biased rules from my resiliency workbook, which you may be sitting there nodding your head saying, yep, that's me. I know I did, and I was amazed at how many rules I actually put on myself. Everything I do must be perfect, otherwise I'm a failure. If I don't finish something, there will be negative consequences. 
I must always be at peak performance. Life is fair or life is unfair. If others disagree with me, I must be wrong. I am only worthwhile if I am doing something for someone else. The way to be accepted or appreciated is by giving and giving to others. Anger is bad. I have the power to change people. Good relationships have no problems. It is easier to avoid life's problems than to face them. I need other people to be supportive of me. There is also the biases and and assumptions of all or nothing thinking, where everything is one extreme or the other. It's either good or it's bad, rich or poor, black or white, happy or sad, smart or stupid, and so forth. Some other biases could be mental filters, like paying attention to only the negatives rather than the full picture, or focusing only on the positives, neglecting the messages of a negative. Many people tend to overgeneralize things, like using a negative to come up with a general rule. For example, I have pain, therefore I can't do house chores. Disqualifying the positive is another one. Focusing on negative beliefs about yourself, like how your life seems, similar to fitting, filtering is, as noted above. Jumping to conclusions, like mind reading, where you believe you know some, what someone is thinking without first clarifying, or fortune telling, where you anticipate that things will always turn out badly, simply because That is what you imagine or predict. This, in particular, feeds feelings of anxiety. Magnification and minimization are like exaggerating your own errors and other people's achievements, so you end up looking inferior. Emotional reasoning is another big one, like thinking that negative emotions reflect the way things actually are. For example, I feel lousy, therefore life is lousy. And the last I'm going to mention, and by far not least important, but we like to label. By attaching a label to yourself based on one event, for example, I made a mistake, so I'm a loser, we cause ourselves a lot of harm in defeatist action. Where a story plot happens is usually more of a description of the environment or location. But in terms of facing your feelings, it's more of a question of where the source of information came from. To quote my occupational therapist, thought is not the same as fact. We don't think in facts. We think in queries. It is learning to criticize whether it is true or not instead of automatic assumptions or rules of how the world works from learned experiences. Be careful how your assumptions fill in the blanks about a situation. It's like fact-checking on if the information was presented through a distorted perspective lens, from a reliable source, or even just how applicable it really is to the situation at hand. Here's a line from my resiliency workbook that I felt summed up the situation pretty good. The best way to avoid problems caused by inaccurate thinking is to simply become aware of when you are doing it. It sounds easy enough, 
but this takes a lot of practice, reflection, and challenging yourself to come up with different ways to think about a situation. We often resume our distorted thinking when we're stressed. It is important to not beat yourself up, recognize it, reframe, and carry on with practice. The feeling thought is what we call perception, and it happens in the blink of an eye. Very little of reality truly affects us, yet our senses pick up the signal that comes from them. There are studies trying to prove what picks up the signal first, but both the heart and brain take the signal and create an instantaneous prediction or calculation of the moment. From there, a series of synapses happen that trigger physiological responses, which our brain then further reacts to and interprets. All of these thoughts create a feeling or emotional reaction that puts a lens on how we perceive a moment and in turn make choices regarding it. For many, the combination of thought and feeling can become a spiral that creates distress for them. It's only natural to want to escape or avoid distress, but often what needs to be managed is the thought-feeling process that carries them through the sensations or levels of anxiety into panic. However, feelings are not thoughts and thoughts are not feelings, though they often go hand in hand. Thinking responses and the types of thoughts we have play a large role in panic disorder. While we assume that situations make us feel a particular emotion, there is really a step in between. Our thoughts influence our feelings, and our feelings influence our thoughts, which means the same situation can perceived in different, be perceived in different ways. Lending to a different emotional experience based on how both the thought and the feeling influence the perceiver. You will hear me say often through my podcast that living is to experience life, but how we interact with our emotions is often paradoxical. That is, the more we fear, struggle with, and try to avoid any form of distress, generally, the worse the distress gets. Our fear and avoidance of the distress then magnifies the distress. This also applies to the positively charged emotions, which is why so many Faiths and healing practices speak of manifesting what to create in energy. You can write your book of life however you choose. You can choose to stay safe in your comfort zone and dip, or you can dip a toe in every day and experience a small part of your feeling. And tomorrow, maybe put the whole foot in. The more you practice in small amounts and train for the big game moments, one day you'll be swimming through life, riding the highs and lows, experiencing life for the joy of each moment. Emotions are not good or bad. They are a communication that alerts us to something. We have to determine if the message and what the appropriate response is, if any is required at all. When we, when we become apt at doing this, we call it emotional readiness, meaning we know how to handle our emotions so we can react in an appropriate manner. People who step into a disaster situation and step up have this readiness because they have learned to manage their emotions using various methods and tools gained throughout life that allow them to regulate a balance that comes across as calm, cool, and collected. In therapy, we call these tools and methods distress management. 
And though there are a whole alphabet of techniques, none will directly help you in a moment, but by practicing them, they increase your readiness for when the time comes. Practicing the skill sets within the management tools is referred to as emotional hygiene, and it is something we all need to learn and practice, just as we all need to brush our teeth, eat well, drink water, and exercise. By having healthy daily emotional hygiene practice as part of our lifestyle, we are better able to determine, to determine what our feelings are telling us, understand what the purpose they serve, so we can decide how we choose to react to something. Many times our emotions are alerting us to the environment around us, and though not always in our control, letting us know where things are not working in our favor. Creating an environment that flows for productivity and promotes a sense of calm can allow for reduced triggered emotional alarms. But where one cannot control the environment, as I said earlier, we need to learn to turn off the alarms and navigate knowing the information we have been alerted to. Emotions are not all or nothing, but they have a purpose. Just because you are scared doesn't mean you need to run away, but that you need to make sense of what scares you. For example, the uncertainty of change can be scary, but doesn't mean that the change is not wanted or for the best, just that there are some parts you can't predict and leave you with uncertainty. In this sense, the scared emotion is a kind of telling you to have a plan without in a plan. Another example is being overjoyed, love drunk, to be in the company of a new partner. In this case, the joy emotion is telling you that you are intrigued and want to discover more, not to drop everything and get married. Perceptions of emotion is also not all or nothing. Someone may may look numb when they are just at terms with their understanding. Someone may seem lost or aloof, but they are just seeking out their purpose. Someone may seem perfect by spoils, but really they were motivated. And it can be hard to tell the difference in others and even harder to notice in ourselves. It takes compassion for yourself and others to create a joyous environment, which means that yourself and others come into a moment and pass through the moment, seeing each in the moment for all of what each is with, without allowing any of the information to have a charge you carry forward, while still receiving it with a charge and storing it as processed. The dictionary defines it as sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortunes of others, but I think it really boils down to understanding. As I leave you to think on this topic, I challenge you to think about this mindfulness exercise until then as well. Write down what societal biases you think keep you using it as a golden rule and how you would rank it compared to the reality of now. Its effects on how you process life and if it's conducive to your personal growth. I will close the conversation by drawing another card from the positive attitude zone, pass cards for short. This question will be the opening question for next episode. The card drawn is pink for reflective thinking and the question is, 
what or who makes a positive difference in your life. We will get to that next week, but in the meantime, you can get your past cards, Positive Attitude Zone, at www.graduatethrivers.com. That's spelled capital G, small r-a-d, capital U, small i-t, capital T, small h-r-i-v-e-r-s.com. Stay wonderful, wholesome, happy, open-minded, and natural, and smile as much as you can. Take care until we talk again. This has been Heidi Hardy on a Mind Matters podcast created by A Light for Change.